The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let us continue. And uh, so we have been looking at this nice sutta in the Anguttara Sevens with various kinds of perceptions uh, that we have to uh, ideally should develop. Uh, and uh, we had a look at the uh, non perception of non-delight in the entire world. Uh, and now we're going to have a look at the next one on this list. And the next one is about the perception of impermanence. And uh, so in a sense we are still remembering we're doing here. We are kind of slotting this under the defilements to be given up by through seeing, yeah, dasana. So all of this is really related to right view, it's related to our outlook, how we think about the world, how we think about things. And of course that is uh, is one of the foundations yeah, for the Buddhist path. But what is also interesting is that we also saw that right view is uh, developed through Effort, yeah, you make the effort. Remember that on the we had a look at the Mahachatari Saka Sutta, and it talks about having to use right effort to enter right view and to give up wrong view. So really, this is also about right effort at the same time. Yeah, using your mind in the right way, and as you use your mind in the right way, then you actually establish right view. So you could put these things under right effort. You can put them under right view. It doesn't really matter. They're kind of a bit of both. So uh, these things are all, all of these factors are often so closely linked to each other uh, and they affect each other uh, so powerfully. Uh. And uh, so the next one is uh, the perception of impermanence. Uh, and uh, of course it is quite closely related to the previous one we saw, the non-delight in the entire world, but it also has kind of its own angle as well. Uh. So let's see what the Buddha has to say about this. Uh. It was said uh, the perception of uh, impermanence, uh, yeah, w uh, because when developed, and what else? Developed and developed and cultivated is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having the deathless as its consummation. Uh, uh, for what reason was this said? When a bhikkhu often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of impermanence, uh, his mind shrinks away from gain, honor, and praise, turns back from them, rolls away from them, is not drawn towards them, uh, in either equanimity or uh, revulsion uh, becomes settled in him. And then we have the same similes that we had before, just as a rooster's feather or a strip of sinew thrown into a fire, shrinks away from it, turns back from it, rolls away from it, is not drawn towards it. Uh, so it is in regard to gain, honor, and praise when a bhikkhu often dwells with a mind accustomed uh, to the perception of impermanence. So let me just quickly check what we have here. Mm. Yeah, okay, it's basically the same thing. I'm just looking at different translations because uh, it's interesting to look at different translations. As I said before, it gives slightly different angles on things. Uh, it's kind of uh, interesting here. Yeah. So I just uh, very briefly having a quick look what it says over here. This is Pantasujato's translation. Uh,
Yeah, he also uses the word revulsion. Particula is the Pali word, and it kind of means uh, means revulsion, basically. So that's good. Okay. So anyway, let's um, so let's kind of discuss this a little bit. Yeah, the idea of uh, impermanence. It's quite interesting here how this. He talks about this in relation to shrinking away from gain, honor, and praise. It's perhaps not what you would expect. Yeah, I don't know what you would expect. Uh, and one of the things that you find in the sutta is that if you develop the perception of impermanence, one of the things that you give up as a consequence is what is called asmi mana. Yeah, you know, asmi mana, one of those uh, famous words that you find in the sutta. Asmi means I am. And mana means like... Um, Pride or uh, conceit, yeah, the conceit I am, the conceit I am is given up when you really contemplate impermanence deeply. Yeah. And these three things here, yeah, honor and praise and even gain, yeah, these are often things that we measure ourselves by. These are things we take pride in. These are the things that give rise to conceit. Yeah, so it's similar to the conceit I am, but it's a more developed form of the conceit I am. Yeah. So these are the things we identify ourselves with and that we take pride in. So it is relate, these things are actually closely related to each other. Yeah. So the root thing that we're trying to, uh, thing we're trying to uproot is the I am conceit. But on the way to uprooting that, uh, we also have to uproot these lesser bad qualities. Yeah, the uh, honor, praise, yay, I am, people like me, hooray. <laughs> Yeah, wow, so many people come and they kind of do, they, they, if you are the king or you are a famous monk, perhaps a lot of people love you, oh, you are so wonderful or whatever, and then you kind of you take that in the wrong way and then it becomes problematic. Yeah. Honor and praise can kind of become problematic. Yeah. And uh, there are whole suttas where the Buddha talks about this, Yeah, the danger in these things. Uh, and if you are not uh, kind of ready to deal with them, you might take them all the wrong way. It can become very problematic. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, and you see that in the world, you see how people sometimes really kind of catch on to these things, uh, and they can't let go of it, uh, and they become corrupted as a consequence. Uh, I once asked Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm is a very famous monk now. Yeah, one of the most famous, probably Buddhist monks in the world. Uh, they have this uh, list of the most famous spiritual teachers in the world. Uh, and Ajahn, over the last 10 years, Ajahn Brahm has always figured in the top kind of hun, top 100 spiritual teachers, and not just Buddhist, uh, but all spiritual teachers of the world uh, or spiritual people. It's kind of a weird list that has all kinds of people in there, things you wouldn't really, people you wouldn't call really spiritual, like, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, can't remember his name now. Uh, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> Well, so almost almost that kind of people. Yeah, people are not really spiritual. Uh, and Ajahn Brahm, so I asked Ajahn Brahm, was, well, you know, is there any danger of kind of praise and honor and these things? Are there are there any danger? In, is there any danger in that? He said, no, you have to be really foolish to kind of catch on to the, you know, hold on to those things. Uh, yeah, and I thought, yeah, probably true. Actually, you have to be foolish. But then most people are a bit foolish. Uh, yeah, and this is the problem. Uh, and the se sense of self is that foolishness inside of us ready to latch on to these things that are really very superficial. And then you can see the idea of contemplating impermanence is just the realization that these things are also going to be very impermanent. One day you are famous and then one day you are not. One day they praise you and the moment they praise you and hold on to that, then when the blame comes, it's going to be all the more painful, all the more difficult to deal with. These things are so incredibly unreliable. So uh, for that reason, uh, you uh, you understand impermanence is the way to overcome these things and not to hold on to them. Uh, famous in one life and the next life, you are really obscure. Uh, nobody remembers you. Uh, this is one, one of the things that Abraham used to say. He said, yeah, in this life, you know, whatever you are, in two or three generations, you will be forgotten. Uh, your name will be erased from human history, uh, never known again at all. Uh, and that's a marvelous idea. Yeah, this is really kind of non-self idea that you will be utterly gone. Uh, nobody will remember you. Uh, even the people who are remembered the longest, uh, they're remembered maybe for a few hundred years. Uh, if you're really exceptional, a few thousand years like the Buddha. But uh, soon enough, uh, ev everyone, every single person will be erased from history uh, as if you never existed at all. Uh, and that's kind of uh, good, isn't it? Uh, is that good? Uh? I think I reckon it's good, huh? yeah. And then you don't take it so seriously, huh? 
you aren't really anyone special. Uh, you're just an ordinary person, just like everyone else, uh, traveling around in samsara, going from one place to another one, uh, and there's nothing there to really hold on to. Uh. So these are great ways of overcoming the attachments to these things, uh, praise and honor, uh, yeah, and whatever else it is, uh, gain as well. We measure ourselves by our wealth very often uh, in our society. Uh. So for this reason, you develop the perception of impermanence. Uh, but uh, the perception of impermanence is usually the way it is uh, described in the suttas uh, is to develop the perception of impermanence in the five khandhas, yeah, the five factors of personality. Yeah. Yeah, this is usually the way it is described. The five factors of personality uh, yeah, in Pali, Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vijnana usually translated as form, feelings, perceptions, uh, uh, the will uh, and consciousness being the last one. Uh, and usually that is where you develop the idea of impermanence uh, with, with these things. Uh. And uh, I just want to very briefly talk about these five khandhas in this connection because people often ask, what are these five khandhas? Uh, it's quite important to get that so you can contemplate them properly. If you don't know even know what they are, you can't really contemplate them. Uh, so what are they? Uh, and it's a good question. Yeah, they sound like some theoretical thing when you mention them as five things. Uh, but it's very simple what they are. They are your experience. Yeah, what you are experiencing right now uh, is the five khandhas. This is the five khandhas. It is experience. And right now uh, you have a sense of uh, physical things. Yeah, the body or whatever uh, is right there. Uh, you have a sense of various mental qualities. Uh, you perceive things around you. Perception just means the ability to recognize the world. Uh, mats, shrines, people, uh, room, houses, uh, friends, enemies. Uh, all kind of perceptions. Uh, the, how we make sense of the world. Uh, Vedana, the feeling, whether it, you are enjoying it or not. Uh, or whether it's just neutral. Uh, and Sankara is where you apply yourself. Uh, what are you attending to? Uh, what is your choice right now? What are you choosing to attend to? What are you choosing to um, to do, basically, with your mind or whatever? Uh, yeah, it's the choices, the the will, whatever it is. And 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 uh, vinyana, the last one, is just the ability to be aware of whatever is going on. Uh. So all of these things are always part of our experience of the world. Uh. Yeah. So this this that's really what it refers to. It refers to the impermanence of our experience. And before I was talking about the samba, loka, anabhirati, sanya, the non-delight in the entire world. That too is part of our experience. That's part of perception in a sense. Yeah? What is the difference between the world out there and the world that we and our personal private world? And there isn't really any difference. You can't really separate these things because the experience of the world happens within us. Yeah, that's how the, where the world is experienced. There isn't really any world out there apart from our individual experience. You know, whether there is, it's kind of irrelevant. Yeah? It's our inner experience of the world that matters. Uh, and that inner experience of the world is going to be impermanent. Things are changing, uh, whatever it is. That, that is where actually these things happen. Uh. So you don't really need to distinguish between the world outside and the world outside. Uh. It's just our personal world. Uh. That's what it comes down to. Uh. So we need to see this as impermanent. So one way of doing that then is precisely to reflect on the world outside as always changing, uh, always moving around uh, yeah, in our personal life, but also in the broader context of the world at large. Uh, everything always, nothing being stable. Uh, this is one way of doing that, and that is actually really just seeing the impermanence of your perception. That's what you're seeing. Yeah, yeah? It is also part of the five khandhas uh, in a way. Yeah? Yeah, see what I mean? Huh? Mm? So everything really comes down to the five khandhas in this way. Huh? But uh, more deeply than that, to really see impermanence more deeply, huh, you have to bring it into your meditation practice. Huh? And we'll talk about this later on when we talk about the Anapanasati Sutta, because that comes out very clearly there. But really, meditation is really, when you do it in the right way, huh, it is an exercise in contemplating impermanence. Huh? Because when you meditate, when you become peaceful, uh, peace arises because things fade away. That's why it arises. Uh, yeah? And fading away is impermanence. Uh. So through becoming peaceful, uh, 
you're also seeing things as impermanent. And this shows you again, and this is such an obvious thing, the more you meditation you do, that vipassana and samatha are not separate things. There isn't really such a thing as vipassana meditation on the one hand and samatha meditation on the other. They always go together. They're part and parcel of the same thing. There's just meditation. There's just bhavana. Yeah, the Buddha teaches anapanasati. He doesn't say this is samatha, this is vipassana. No, it's both. It has to be both because calming, yeah, calming down is a fading away of things. It is an aspect of impermanence. It gives you access to seeing impermanence within your own five khandhas. Of course, you can see that in everyday life, but it's very superficial. When you see the impermanence in meditation, it is far more powerful. Yeah, you see these things in a much deeper way. Yeah, when you sit, they become peaceful, the body fades away. That is seeing the impermanence of the body. When certain perceptions fade away, certain feelings of pain or whatever, they disappear. And all you are left with is happiness. It's marvelous when that happens, isn't it? And you understand the impermanence of painful feelings. You don't have to have painful feelings. One of the great ways of understanding that impermanence. You don't have to even experience painful feelings to understand that they are impermanent. Sometimes people say, yeah, you have to watch the painful feelings to understand their impermanence. Actually, you don't really have to do that. You can just bypass them entirely, uh, go straight to the joy. Uh, uh, bad feelings are gone, uh, yeah, and then you know they are impermanent. And the deeper you go, the more things fade from your consciousness. Uh, the more you understand that these things are impermanent, gradually, stage by stage. And not only do you understand the impermanence, but just to kind of foreshadow, if you like, the next contemplation here, you also see that as they fade away, you become more happy or more content or more peaceful or more satisfied. There's less problems in your life. Everything is more beautiful. Why? Because those things that faded away, they must have been dukkha. Yeah, that's the, that's the ex obvious explanation. They have faded away, they're gone, so they must be dukkha. And then from the fading away, and from these things not being reachable anymore, yeah, just to even go further down the track, you also understand them as non-self as well. Yeah. So this is how the real contemplation of uh, impermanence happens. Uh, happens on an ordinary level, day to day, seeing the world. Uh, but then it happens in a profound way in the through the meditation. And that is how you understand the five khandhas as impermanent. It's kind of strange, you know, when you read this uh, sutta, this is a sutta which has the contemplation of impermanence in it. Wake up. <coughs> and um, all it says, yeah, the perception of impermanence. Uh, it is when a mendicant has gone to the wilderness uh, or to the root of a tree uh, or to an empty hut and they reflect like this. Uh, form, feeling, perception, choices and consciousness are impermanent. And so they meditate observing impermanence in the five grasping personality factors. This is called the perception of impermanence. <laughs> And it's very short, yeah, and it's kind of hard to really know what that exactly what that means. But it means something like this. You will notice there, they have gone to the wilderness, the root of a tree, or to an empty hut. This signifies that they are doing meditation practice. That's what you do in these empty huts. And then when you do meditation practice, then that is where you start to see impermanence. Yeah, this is kind of the idea behind this. So this is how... It works, uh, and this is this perception of impermanence. Uh, and of course, ultimately, if you keep on doing that, uh, then you will also give up the sense of I am, because uh, you will realize that all of these things, uh, that where you saw a self before, they're not worthy to be taken as a self, because uh, there's nothing there that is nothing there that is lasting, uh, nothing there that can, uh, can be taken as an I. Uh. So that is the uh, idea of uh, the contemplation of impermanence. Uh, yeah, it's part of it. I mean, all of these things can be done in different ways, uh, and uh, people will talk about these things in, uh, you know, from their angle. Uh, uh, this is largely sutta-based, uh, but uh, you can, you know, you you can always expand on this a little bit and and try to kind of make sense of them in your own life. That's when they become really powerful. Uh, how, how do you see impermanence in your own life? Where do you see it? How does it touch you? What does it feel like? And some of these things are, you know, 
very obvious. Uh, yeah, things like people coming and going, people getting sick, people dying, the very obvious things. Uh, uh, just other changes in your life, getting fired from your job, yeah, relationships breaking up, uh, uh, pains coming and going in your life. All of these things are part of this whole sphere of impermanence. Uh, and then gradually you deepen it and deepen it. Uh, and then uh, this is where eventually it goes through meditation practice. Uh. So what does the Buddha say? He says then... So you shrink away from gain, honor, and praise because you understand that these things are also impermanent. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to hold on to these things. Uh, people praise you and it's not, not going to last uh, and it's just going to be a problem. You're going to hold on to it and then it's going to be problematic for you. Uh, so you roll back from all that and then equanimity, equanimity or revulsion becomes established in you. Uh, you become like, oh no, I can't take that because it's just you see the suffering in that, the problem in that. And then the Buddha says, if, a, if when a bhikkhu or anyone really often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of impermanence, then the mind inclines to gain honor and praise. And if it does not turn away from them, he should understand, I have not developed the perception of impermanence. There is no distinction between my earlier condition and my present one. I have not attained the fruit of development. Thus he clearly comprehends this. Yeah, this idea of clear comprehension, sampajanya, I think it is. Uh, yeah, so you are aware of what is going on. Sampajanya is one of the factors that allows you to develop your mind. Uh, you have clarity about what is going on. You see that when the mind has a problem and then you carry on practicing to um, avoid that problem in the future. Uh, but if when he often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of impermanence, uh, his mind shrinks away from gain, honor and praise, etc., and either equanimity or revulsion becomes settled in him, he should understand, I have developed the perception of impermanence. There is a distinction between my earlier condition and the present one. I have attained the fruit of development. And he clearly comprehends this. When it was said the perception of impermanence because when developed and cultivated is of great fruit and benefit, culminating in the deathless, having the deathless as its consummation. It is because of this that this was said. Okay, so that is uh, the perception of impermanence. We will come back to this later on because it is very a uh, fundamental part of Buddhism. And we will talk about it more in conjunction with the Anapanasati Sutta, the mindfulness of breathing. That's where it comes back very, very powerfully here. Um, but now let us move on to the next perception. It was said, uh, the perception of suffering in what is impermanent, uh, because uh, when developed and cultivated is of great fruit uh, and benefit, uh, culminating in the deathless, having the deathless as its consummation. Uh, for what reason uh, was this said? So now we are dealing with the uh, uh, seeing the suffering in what is impermanent, yeah? And it's kind of obvious why that, that is the case. As I mentioned before, you know, when you have a sense of self, you attach to things in the world. That is what happens when you have a sense of self. It is unavoidable. And the moment you attach, yeah, and things are impermanent, you're going to suffer. Because what you hold on to, what is me, what is mine, what I like, that is going to be uh, taken from you, uh, and that always hurts. Uh, yeah, so attachment uh, and impermanence uh, are two things when they kind of join together lead to suffering. Uh. Attachment and impermanence are kind of two things trying to go in the opposite direction. Attachment tries to keep things permanent, uh, whereas impermanence obviously does the exact opposite. Uh. So you know that it's going to be problematic uh, yeah, when things are impermanent. Uh. So you s so, and there's often enough you don't actually have to contemplate this very deeply, a little bit, but it's kind of obvious. Yeah, When you see impermanence in life, you understand that it's going to be problematic. You understand it's going to be suffering. Yeah? So one of the questions that we should often ask ourselves is where exactly are we attaching? Yeah? What are the things that you hold on to? Yeah? 
What are the things that you delight in in the world? Yeah, when you look at something, you go, oh, it's so beautiful, it's so nice. You know, when someone mentioned recently the idea that in the Sutta, especially in the Theragata, you find some of the Arahants rejoicing in nature, for example. Yeah, nature, wow, it is so marvelous and, and beautiful. And they talk about the mountain cries and the forest groves and the, the birds flying overhead and all of these kind of things. And they're obviously delighting in nature. Yeah, these are Arahants. But um, there is different ways of delighting. There is like delighting just generally because nature is a place where you can find peace and calm away from the crowd and you can enjoy seclusion, all of these kind of things. So you're delighting it with a particular kind of perception. But there's also delighting with attachment, yeah, where you're attached to things. When you go and you see, and then when things have changed, yeah, you feel bad yeah it reminds me of my mother she was kind of this really is a very avid gardener she had always had beautiful gardens wherever she has lived and then the deer will come into the garden the deer yeah and they will eat her roses and she gets really upset with the deer for eating her roses yeah which is very sweet in a sense <laughs> and uh, that is like you are attached to your garden yeah it's very obvious yeah and straight away you notice that if you are in the same boat what happens if someone comes and kind of does something bad in your garden or the snails come in and they eat the plants in her garden. That's happened with my, my mother as well. So she kind of doesn't like those snails. So she asked me, what should I do with the snails? <laughs> should I throw them in the ocean? She lives on the ocean front. Yeah? So should I just chuck them in the ocean? And I said, mm, yeah, maybe think carefully about that before you do it. Never just say no, because then it's kind of, you, you have to kind of ma- ma- awaken the, the natural wisdom within. That's much more powerful. Huh? So, uh, and this is how you see your little attachments, uh, yeah? If someone breaks into your house, uh, how do you feel? Uh, if someone steals something that is yours, uh, if something goes wrong, uh, yeah, which it all often does, uh, and uh, this is how you see these things. Uh, if uh, you come back to your hometown where you grew up and it's changed from what it was before, uh, how do you feel about that? Uh, does it feel bad or do, are you okay with dealing with that? Uh, these are the areas where you see change being difficult people who used to be your friends you meet them again and you have nothing in common anymore are you can you is that easy to deal with or is it hard to deal with yeah you can see your attachments are you able to go with the flow of things or are you not that is where you see the problems arising in the world the potential dukkha coming so going with the flow is one of those beautiful things in buddhism and then you can kind of keep that stable mind without holding on to anything in the entire world but in Yana monastery bing gone yeah turned to dust and ashes burns down in the great fire in 1991 and you think oh yeah i expected that that's kind of the thing yeah you have, it's almost like you expect it we don't expect it but you don't you're not surprised when it happens because you know deep down that these things are impermanent that is really the, the thing here so this is how you do that and then you kind of start to uncover the dukkha that is there the potential suffering that is always there behind the surface because you see your attachments and you know the world is always going to challenge those attachments regardless of what it is so you see the suffering in the impermanence. And when that happens, when a bhikkhu often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of suffering in the impermanent, a keen perception of danger becomes settled in him towards indolence. Indolence, laziness, slackness, heedlessness, lack of effort and unreflectiveness just as toward a murderer with a drawn sword. <laughs> That's a nice, nice reflection, isn't it? Just like a murderer with a drawn sword. It's like a murderer walking behind you, ready to chop your head off at a moment's notice. Actually, you don't get a notice at all. It just chops it off without notice. <laughs> That's what happens. Yeah, and this is the, the kind of the, the suffering, always waiting around the corner, waiting to, uh, just uh, when it, keeping you, uh, kind of when you are least expecting it, uh, that's when change happens, uh, yeah? And then you have to suffer the consequences. Uh. So you become worried about it, not, not worried, but you become very aware of this danger in the world at all times. Uh. And then it takes away the, the slackness, takes away the heedlessness. Uh. Part of that is... Uh, one very powerful way of doing this is one of kind of 
um, very useful reflection because it kind of collects many of the aspects of Dhamma into one reflection, and that is the death reflection. Uh, yeah, death is a very powerful reminder of impermanence, yeah? and also the dukkha in impermanence. Uh, if you hold on to things when you die, it's going to be very painful. You're not going to be able to die peacefully because you try to hold on to what that which cannot be held on to. Uh. So it's very, very useful in, uh, in this sense. Uh, yeah? And of course, if you are on your deathbed, uh, then that is precisely what you do. You become, in a sense, so clear about the fact of giving up and letting things be. You become very heedful, yeah, in the sense that you do the right thing at that time because you understand the problem of these things. So the reflectiveness is there. You are like that. That is when the murderer with a drawn sword is definitely there because you are about to die. Yeah, nature is that murderer. Nature is what takes your life away. And the sword is just the various ways in which nature always changes one way or another one. Uh, so that is a very beautiful way of kind of accumulating uh, a lot of the potential of the path into one thing, one simple reflection. Uh, that is why the idea of death is so powerful. Uh, and it says in one of the suttas, it specifically says that if you are a monastic, for example, uh, if the contemplation of death is properly established, you will not disrobe. Uh, because what is there to disrobe for her? Nothing. Yeah, if you're going to die tomorrow, what, what are you going to disrobe for? There's nothing in the world that could be of interest if you're going to die tomorrow. A relationship, uh, enjoying the sensual pleasures. Uh, well, it's only interesting if there's something there worth holding on to. But if you're going to die, all of that kind of seems irrelevant. So the, the contemplation of death is very powerful in keeping you on the path, uh, in reminding you of what is really important in life, uh, keeping you on the right track. Yeah, yeah? And then uh, you kind of things kind of going in the right way. Uh. So this is, um, this is this idea of remembering the dukkha that comes from grasping things in the world. Uh, and then you kind of keep your hands away. You don't grasp so many things in the world. Uh. If, when a bhikkhu, anyone often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of suffering in the impermanent, a keen perception of danger and, and a keen perception of danger does not become settled in him towards indolence, laziness, slackness, heedlessness, lack of effort, and unreflectiveness, just as towards, toward a murderer with a drawn sword, he should understand, I have not developed the perception of suffering in the impermanent. Uh, there is no distinction between my earlier condition and my present one. Uh, I have not attained the fruit of development. Uh, thus, he clearly comprehends this. Uh, but if, when he often dwells with a mind accustomed to the perception of suffering in the impermanent, uh, a keen perception of danger becomes settled in him, uh, towards indolence, laziness, slackness, heedlessness, lack of effort and unreflectiveness, uh, just as toward a murderer with a drawn sword, uh, he should understand, I have developed the perception of suffering. Uh, in the impermanent, uh, there is a distinction between my earlier condition and my present one. Uh, I have attained the fruit of development. Uh, thus, he clearly comprehends this. When it was said, uh, the perception of permanence of suffering in the impermanent because uh, when developed and cultivated is a great fruit and benefit uh, culminating in the deathless having the deathless as its consummation it is because of this that this was said so um, there you are these are all angles different angles on the same basic thing yeah the same basic thing I it is kind of fascinating. One of the things that I often try to do, which I think is very useful, is to try to summarize the Buddhist teaching into some very simple things that we can recall and kind of bring out in everyday practice. And when you hear all of this, you think, well, this is just too much. How am I going to be able to use all of this? Yeah. And the thing is, you don't need to. These things are there in the background. They are background teachings. And they are there to really just to condition you to think about the world in a useful way. And for some of you, maybe this is too much. Maybe you think, oh, not, you know, Buddhism. I used to think I was a Buddhist, but I'm not sure anymore after seeing all this. <laughs> I think I'm going to go out and go to the church next door instead. Or maybe just become an atheist or whatever. Maybe that's much safer. Yeah, and but so... 
I hope not too many of you think like that, because this is really realistic. Yeah, don't you don't you agree? This is actually quite realistic. It's a realistic look on life. It may not be a pleasant look on life, but it, this is really how what life is like. And if we are realistic, there is a potential for finding a solution. Like I said before, if you are not realistic, there's no way you're going to find a solution. You're going to head in the wrong direction. You're going to head down the kumaga, the wrong path. It's a beautiful thing found in the Majjhimanikaya 26, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, where the Buddha meets the Ajivaka. Ajivaka is one of the various sects in ancient India. And the Buddha meets the Ajivaka. And then the Ajivaka comes to the Buddha and he has just become the Buddha. He has just enlightened. You can imagine what that is like when someone is just enlightened. It would be very powerful uh, just in, to be in their presence. They would be extraordinarily peaceful, very bright. There would be something very powerful about them there. Uh. So he comes into the presence of the Buddha and he's like, whoa, well, you know, you are very, there's something special about you. You know, he says about the Buddha, you, you, whoa, you, your faculties are so pure. What is going on? And the Buddha tells him that, you know, I've had this insight into the nature of reality or whatever. And then the Ajivika says, but, but who is your teacher? And he says, I have no teacher. I discovered this myself. And then the Ajivika says, yeah, sure, sure. And then he kind of walks off, yeah? And... <laughs> And where he walks off is the kumaga, is the wrong direction, the wrong path, yeah? Because you just can't take it, it's just too much to kind of accept what is going on. Huh? So <laughs> it's a nice idea, yeah? So you, and this is the problem sometimes. These te- sometimes it's just too much, and then we walk off and we lose out on the potential. So I, be careful with that. Instead, reflect on these things, allow these things to sink in slowly, yeah? because, uh, I don't know, to my mind, these are very beautiful, powerful spiritual teachings. Uh, and they really have amazing results. Uh, you know, if you saw the arahants in the world and all the arahants in the world were crying, yeah. oh no, I've discovered the truth. Yeah, the, oh, it's so terrible, the truth. Oh no, <laughs> I wish I haven't discovered the truth. Uh, that's not what the arahants say. Yeah, the arahants are the happiest people in the world, even though they have seen the truth. Uh, so actually, we know from that uh, that walking this path is happy. Yeah, it has good results. Uh, thinking like this, ultimately, if you do it in the wise way, it has very be- beneficial results. Uh, the Arahants are the most peaceful, the happiest people in the world. Anyone who has gone a long way on this path, uh, who has deep meditation, will be happy as a result. Uh, so remember to balance these things out. I'm always afraid that next year when I come back, only half the crowd will come. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> So this is um, the idea. Uh, this is the idea here. So you were just—I um, forgot where I was going with. It. I was going to go somewhere with this, but I, I think I lost track after saying all this other stuff in between. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, so anyway, so let's um, carry on. And uh, there's another little sutta, kind of little interlude, yeah, before we move on to the next one. There's another one of these beautiful little uh, verses uh, that the Pali Canon is full of. And this is also in the Devata Sangyuta, yeah, this, uh, the Sangyuta on the heavenly beings. Uh, and the Devata speaking and the Buddha replying. Yeah. And the um, Devata says uh, to the Buddha, What is good? Until old age, what is good when established? What is the precious gem of humans? What is hard for thieves to steal? Virtue or sila is good until old age. Faith is good when established. Wisdom is the precious gem of humans. Merit is hard for thieves to steal. Nice little verse. And again, it's just it's quite obvious what these things mean, yeah, but they're kind of said in a way, and often in Pali the verse is even more nice, and the reason is because in Pali it will be metrical. So when you hear it, it will have a certain rhythm to it, yeah. So it makes it even more nice. In English you can't really you can't really make it into verse proper, so you just have to uh, uh, translate what is there. But still it is quite nice. Virtue is good until old age. Uh, yeah, it, I, what does it mean? It, prob- it means that you can practice virtue even when you're old. Even when you're old, you can be kind. Even when you're old, you can have good thoughts. It also means that you probably that 
the virtue that you carry with you now, you carry it with you throughout your life until you become old, and then it supports you in your old age. It's important when you become old, it's very useful to have something there to support you, because old age is often difficult, Yeah, it's often hard. The most difficult time of life, you become very lose your independence, uh, you become dependent on others for your survival and all of these kind of things. It's actually quite, uh, it's quite you know, difficult for people to deal with. So if you have the inner glow instead, uh, the inner satisfaction, uh, of course it's going to help you through that difficult period. Uh. So in both w- these ways, it's uh, virtue or sila is powerful. Uh, yeah? And the faith is good when it is established. In other words, you'd want to establish the faith as deeply as possible. That faith, when it is there in a triple gem, it is good because it gives rise to also a lot of joy and happiness. Because you have something meaningful in your life, something to support you, something that is there to kind of take you through the difficult times or whatever, and to help you in your meditation practice. This is the idea of faith. You have the Dhamma, you have the Buddha, you have uh, people around you, you still have probably areas in the world, the noble ones who understand what is going on. Wow, that's amazing. Why is that so? Why is it so amazing? It is so amazing because these are the very things that give rise to happiness and avoid suffering for human beings. This is the very thing that um, deals directly with the meaning of life. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants to reduce suffering. Everyone wants to be content and satisfied. Everyone wants all these good qualities. Yeah, that's what life is about. That's what everyone is looking for, and everyone is looking in the wrong place. Not everyone, but the vast majority. Yeah, running around trying to look for happiness and the wrong things, and not succeeding. And yet, then comes the Buddha along, and says, "You are looking in the wrong place. Look here instead." Don't try to find that happiness in the pursuit of worldly things, uh, in the pursuit of status, the pursuit of uh, the ordinary worldly things. It, will, it cannot be found there. And yet that is exactly what the vast majority of people do. Uh, they don't know what they're doing, uh, but they are pers- trying to pursue it. Uh, yeah, r- They are driven by craving to find these things. Craving really is the pursuit of happiness. That's what it is. Uh. And then one day you turn around and you understand that actually there is someone called the Buddha there is a teaching called the Dhamma, which actually t- points you in the right direction, huh? where you can actually find these things. Yeah, That is the greatest gift you can have. You can be given as a human being. Yeah? We honor our teachers in school. Yeah, Oh, teacher, thank you for teaching me maths. Yeah, Thank you for teaching me writing, whatever it is. Yeah? And of course, why do we thank the teacher? Well, because then the teacher allows you a livelihood, yeah, your, your livelihood is based on your ability to do these basic things in the world. Uh, but in having a livelihood is important to survive, it's important to have that kind of happiness, if you like. If you can't survive, it is more suffering. Less suffering is more happiness. Uh, but the Buddha goes right to the essence of it, uh, right to the essence of what is happiness and suffering in life. Uh, and he shows you real happiness, real contentment, uh, real satisfaction. Uh, the very meaning of life itself, what everyone really is searching for her, and without often really understanding that that is what they're searching for her. And that is why the Buddha is a supreme teacher. And that is why you should feel so happy, yeah, that you have actually found this. Often we don't really understand the gem that we have discovered, and that is part of the problem. The more you understand that, the more you have access to something which is always there to support you, guide you in the right way, move you towards that which is meaningful and useful. And then when you sit down in meditation, yeah, you uh, sometimes you just cry tears of joy because you know that you have found something very powerful and beautiful. So this is faith is good when it is established. The more established it is, yeah, the faith, the confidence, the more powerful it is on this path. Sometimes you just need to reflect a little bit. What is this Buddha? Yeah, what is the teaching that he has? How does it affect the world? And that reflection is what gradually makes you understand the power of these teachings, what they really are about. They really are about the very meaning of life. This is what, what it means to be human, the purpose of human existence. That's what it points you towards. So, And once you've found the meaning of life, what else are you going to do? Are you going to go back to that which is not the meaning of life? Yeah, yeah, forget about the meaning of life. I'm going to do the non-meaning of life. You, you can't do that, yeah? It's kind of madness to do that. If you really think you found the meaning, 
You've got to carry on. This is the only sensible thing here. Wisdom is the precious gem of humans. Wisdom is like the highest that we have as human beings, yeah? Because wisdom is the thing that stabilizes all the other factors on the Buddhist path. Wisdom is what enables us to see the difference between what is good and what is bad. Wisdom is what uh, uh, guides us throughout life. So the more wisdom you have, the better it is. Everything else comes from wisdom. And it starts off with the Buddha helping you with that, uh, kind of giving you an insight, and gradually you build up your own wisdom, your own understanding of these things. Uh, the highest gem of humanity. Uh, I don't know, I, for me, always wisdom has always seemed like something really awesome uh, and uh, something really worth pursuing, precisely for that reason. Uh, you have the five indriyas, yeah, the five faculties of the mind and the wisdom faculty is always said to be the highest of those and all the other ones they exist in dependence on the wisdom faculty the gem of human beings merit is hard for thieves to steal <laughs> they can try but cannot steal it so um uh, there, there is a yeah so uh, you make merit you use whatever you whatever way you can to ensure that you have built up those inner qualities uh, and then uh, you have something with you that is yours, uh, personal, you can take with you into the future uh, and no one can take it with, take it from you. All your other possessions, they can always be taken from you but not uh, your inner accumulated uh, goodness would never actually be taken away. Uh. Anyway, it's kind of nice, these little verses, I, I love them, they're really beautiful. Uh, they are a bit more they're not as dry. I mean, some of the prose I've just been reading through it was really kind of dry. Yeah, the same thing, one paragraph after the next one. It's interesting when you look into it and when you understand what is going on. But you can see why you need something more, a bit more juicy, like the verses to kind of add to the feeling of the Dhamma. So, uh, now I'm going to continue with the... Uh, looking at, I still consider this to be an aspect of right view, but remember there is no absolute distinction between right view and right effort. These things are all kind of together. The next sutta, the Potalia, the Wanderer, the sutta, often I talk about this under right effort because it is a way of thinking about the world again. Yeah, It is uh, how the Buddha discusses the world in using similes. And there's going to be more of the same of what I've been talking about, but uh, this time from different kind of perspectives and angles. And uh, I have always found these similes very, very useful uh, as a way of uh, reflecting about the nature of especially sensory existence, uh, the sensory world uh, and its drawbacks uh, and its uh, uh, the problems. So here, for, for once, I have kind of uh, slotted it under right view rather than right effort uh, because it is a, a way of looking at the world, of understanding the nature of the world. So here we meet this wanderer called Potalia and he comes to meet the Buddha. And this is the conversation that they have, uh, which is this particular sutta found in the Majjhimanikaya, the middle-length sayings of the Buddha, number 54. Uh, and... Um, we won't get very far into the sutta because we only have a few minutes left, but I will just get started and then we can, uh, we can take it further down, uh, further later on. So, I have heard at one time the Buddha was staying in the land of the northern Apanas, near the town of theirs called Apana. Then the Buddha robed up in the morning and taking his ball and robe, entered Apana for arms. He wandered for arms in Apana. After the meal, on his return from arms round, he went to a certain forest for the day's meditation. Having plunged deep into it, he sat at the root of a certain tree for the day's meditation. This is kind of the standard way. Yeah, they would, they, things are described in the suttas. And you go into the village in the morning or the town or whatever, uh, 
you get your arms food, you have your meal, and then you go for the midday's meditation afterwards. Uh, you plunge into the forest. Yeah, always go into a place of solitude is what you find. Meditation happens in solitude, uh, sitting at the root of a tree. Of course, those Indian trees can often have pretty spectacular roots and large root systems. Uh, sometimes you can like sit inside the roots almost if you've seen those uh, roots where the kind of roots you know go all over the place. Uh, uh, often the fig trees have these kind of roots uh, and then you sit there uh, in the, for the day's meditation. And the Buddha, one of his famous meditations, because he is already enlightened or awakened, he doesn't really need to meditate so much for the path. Uh, so he often does the karuna meditation, yeah, the compassion for the entire world. Uh, and uh, I guess maybe that is just to prepare his mind maybe for teaching yeah if you have the great compassion for people then you are you, the um, desire to teach becomes very strong probably because you're going to help people out uh, and um, one of those things one of the things I have often discussed with Ajahn Brahm uh, and uh, he always says that you know when the Buddha gets reaches his awakening uh, he needs some kind of impetus to get him started uh, yeah, because the Buddha is so peaceful after his awakening, there's nothing there to drive him to actually uh, act, yeah, to teach people. And uh, so he, the Ajahn Brahm says, well, that's why the Brahma Sahampati has to come to the Buddha and say, please teach. Yeah, otherwise the Buddha would just sit there. He wouldn't do anything. Just chill, yeah, for the, and chill until he dies, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of nice idea so is that true and i think there's a lot of truth to that yeah it takes a lot because the peace the peacefulness is so incredibly powerful you need something to drive you and what drives you is compassion yeah you brahma sampadi come and say please yeah there are all these beings with dust in their eyes they can't see anything they're wandering around searching for a good teaching and can't find it please teach and the buddha says hmm <laughs> no he doesn't say that I, <laughs> the buddha says you have a point. And then he kind of surveys the world, yeah, and he kind of looks out and sees the qualities and beings. Uh, and then he goes out and he starts teaching. Yeah. So this is, I think, is a similar kind of thing that he's doing here. Yeah. He used the Maha Karuna, as it's called. Karuna being compassion in Pali. Maha meaning great, yeah, the great compassion. He surveys the world and he kind of establishes his mind. Uh, and then he's ready to kind of serve humanity. Yeah. So this is uh, what happens. It gives you uh, an idea of what the Buddha was like. And then later on, in the later years, he would establish the large monasteries, uh, like in Savati, the Jeta Grove, and at the Pindika's monastery, which uh, you can go to the present day. Yeah, I know many of you have been to India, and you've probably been to Savati. It is still there. You can go and see these monasteries. And it's actually quite nice. Savati is actually quite a peaceful place. It's like in the middle of nowhere, really. It's peaceful until all those pilgrims with loudspeakers and drums or whatever come. Uh, then it's not so peaceful any anymore. Uh, last time I was there, there was a 10 busloads of Korean tourists came exactly when I came. Uh, and they were not the quietest of t <laughs> tourists. <laughs> but So this is the problem sometimes with these places. They can be very inspiring, but sometimes they, there is a little bit too much noise sometimes, in my, in my opinion, anyway. Uh, so you have to find a nice place and you can hang out there for a while. Uh, what is really nice is to go to the, my, one of my favorite places, go to the Vulture's Peak. And they often you have to go there really, really early in the morning before anyone else goes. You get these armed guards to take you up there because they're quite dangerous areas. And then they kind of, you sit there and you, if you go really early, you go before everyone else. It's beautiful up there, really peaceful. And you get a feeling for what it must have been like to be the Buddha sitting on Vulture's Peak two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah, all nothing in front of you, just a valley there. Uh, and then uh, as you sit there, the sun kind of rises on the horizon. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, it's a really, really fantastic uh, thing to do. Uh, and if you haven't been on a pilgrimage, uh, I would uh, recommend you at least once in a lifetime to try this uh, because it can be very beautiful. People react in different ways. Uh, I know that some of you feel a lot of joy and happiness when you go on pilgrimage and you get some really nice meditation. Not everyone gets that. Uh, it really depends. You know, if you ask Ajahn Brahm about going on pilgrimage, he says, well, you should go to the four holy places within. That's what he says, uh, which means first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. Those are the real holy places, according to Ajahn Brahm. And of course, he's right. Yeah, that is true. But the pilgrimage should be something that encourages you. Yeah, if you haven't got to those jhanas yet, uh, it kind of supports you in that. Uh, 
because you walk in the footsteps of the Buddha, yeah, and you kind of feel those places, and they have a certain power for many reasons. One of the reasons is because you already have some faith in the Buddhist teachings. So, so Apana, yeah, I've never been to Apana. Has anyone here ever been to Apana? This is in, happens in Apana. I don't even know if anyone knows where Apana is anymore. It's probably disappeared in the midst of history, but uh, that's fine. Okay, so let's um, continue a little bit. Portalia, the householder, also approached that forest grove while going for a walk. He was well-dressed in a cloak and sarong, a parasol and sandals. Having plunged deep into that forest grove, he went up to the Buddha and exchanged greetings with him. When the greetings and polite conversation were over, he stood to one side, and the Buddha said to him, There are seats, householder. Please sit if you wish. Quite nice, isn't it? The Buddha says, Please come in, sit down. Yeah, not come in, that's not inside, but please, you know. It's beautiful little things that you see in the Sutta. Some of these things are very very kind of, um, I don't know, touching almost. Uh, so here you have Potalia, yeah, with a cloak and sarong, parasol and sandals. Uh, why is all of, why are all of these things said? Why does it even mention this? Uh, well, first of all, I like the translation sarong, yeah, because this is what people use at that time. Uh, and this is what I also translate in my translations. I always use the word sarong. Uh, so I really, really approve of the use of sarong here. Uh. <laughs> But so that's nice. Yeah, you have to make these things real. It has to feel like you're actually reading a real text and you know you can relate to it. But the idea with parasol and sandals is that you are a bit conceited. Yeah? You consider yourself above other people. You're kind of having a parasol as a symbol of status in ancient India. You're wearing footwear and you also have a parasol in hand. And you put your nose a bit up, yeah, and you, you kind of you <laughs> So this is the uh, this, so this is this is on purpose to say this is a slightly conceited person, and of course if you are conceited then uh, you are, you have to be ready for a downfall because someone is going to ensure that that conceit, especially Buddha, is going to kind of get you back to ground level again, uh, yeah, and, and not kind of. So, but this was one of the things that happened at the time of the Buddha. People would often seek out ascetics and Brahmins, people who meditate. They would seek out the Buddha in the forest, yeah, because they were interested in spiritual people. India has always been a very kind of spiritual society. I don't know if you go there today, spirituality seems to be everywhere in India. And they may be looking in the wrong place, but at least they have you know, some inclination towards that. And when you look at many Western societies, we are... Maybe sometimes we are religious, but not very spiritual. Uh, religion can be, you have religion uh, of, of all kinds of sorts, going to church or whatever, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a very spiritual approach to life just because you go to church. Uh, whereas these people are much more spiritual, in, interested in the very meaning of life, yeah? how to live your life in a good way and all of these kind of things. Uh, and uh, so you can imagine yourself sometimes, what would it be like uh, to plunge into the forest uh, and meet the Buddha. That'd be awesome. <laughs> it would be awesome, right? It would be really kind of amazing to meet the Buddha in the forest. Imagine that happening here. And sometimes it can be very useful to imagine that. I don't know if, about you, but I would feel probably a little bit of trepidation if I were to meet the Buddha. His reputation is just so enormous, especially if you are a Buddhist. Okay, you have met many impressive monks, and you might be a little bit, I don't know if you're afraid of Ajahn Brahm, but uh, maybe you are a little bit kind of, he, he's very very nice, it's not nothing to be afraid of, but still you might be a little bit kind of concerned when you meet someone like Ajahn Brahm. But the Buddha is like, you know, he's a beginner, the start, start point of this entire tradition. So you can imagine going into the forest and seeing the Buddha. But then when you come in, what, what does the Buddha say to you? He says, please sit down. Yeah, please relax. Make yourself at home. How are you? Have you had a good meal? Where are you coming from? Nice to see you. Uh, do you have any questions? Uh, I have problems with my wife. <laughs> <laughs> ask something proper. Yeah, ask ask a real spiritual question. So, th and this is yeah, th this is the kind of questions that I'm sure the Buddha got that a lot. Yeah, because uh, this is what happens with spiritual people. Uh, but uh, and uh, sometimes, and the Buddha would have endless patience with you. Uh, and after a while, when you start to relax, uh, you start to understand that you are in the presence uh, 
of something very powerful, something very beautiful, uh, something very peaceful, something very pure, uh, something that has the potential to uh, you know, transform you as well uh, if you go in that direction. Uh. So uh, this is the power of seeing something spiritual, something important, yeah? And this is what they were looking for at that time, people. Uh, and that would transform their life and they would then be on the spiritual path. Uh. So I'm gonna, I can't really say much more now because time is running out. Uh. I fact, I did that on purpose. I made time run out because I didn't want to get into the sutta. Uh, so I'm really being sneaky. <laughs> But uh, so I want to kind of get all of these similes together in one go. So uh, then we're going to see exactly how the Buddha deals with it, Potalia, and how he talks about him with sensual pleasures, yeah, and how to deal with these things. One of my favorite suttas. I hope you hang around, and this, we're going to have a look at this tomorrow morning. Yeah? And uh, uh, in any case, we will uh, meet again this afternoon. Later on, it's already the afternoon by the way, this evening at 6.30, so I'll see you back again at 6.30. Yeah.